Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, all right, all right, all right. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of What Had Happened, a true crime podcast. I am your host, Kimberly, bringing you lesser-known true crime stories. Happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there and moms who are doing the damn thing being both mom and dad and everything in between chef don't judge let me get my script open how about that that would help okay anyways welcome back everybody how's everybody doing it it you know graduation season is just wrapped up summer's upon us kids are out of school so now i can get back to what it do which is bringing you guys lesser known true crime stories um i hope everybody's doing super great I cannot complain. I am super, you know, content right now, right? Living my life this summer. Um, you know, shout out to all my best friends that I've been able to hang out with um, in the past few weeks. I also want to thank you all for coming back again for this latest installment, especially those of you who've been with me from the beginning. You've helped me, you know, grow and develop better content with each episode. So with that, I want to say thank you so much for all of your support. I know that I'm an acquired taste, and I'm not for everyone. However, I am for those of you who keep coming back. Your feedback is invaluable, and I really do appreciate you. With that, it's time for me to say thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is your shout-out time. So good to see you again, Bozeman, Billings, Helena, Missoula and Kalispell, Montana. Welcome back. St. Louis, Kansas City, Joplin, Palmyra, Jefferson City, and Cape Girardeau, Missouri. How are you? Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Dayton, and Wooster, Ohio. I see you. Memphis, Nashville, Chattanooga, Knoxville, and Murfreesboro, Tennessee. How's it going? Salem, Boardman, Portland, Bend, and Eugene, Oregon. Greetings and salutations. New Orleans, Westwego. Lake Charles, Baton Rouge, and Shreveport, Louisiana. Good to see you, Manhattan, Albany, Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Rochester, New York. It's always a pleasure, Germany, India, France, Kenya, Singapore, and Argentina. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the like, shares, and subscribes. All of the social links and references can be found in the description box, per the usual. Um, so last episode I discussed the heinous multiple crimes committed by one Macon, Georgia, well-known businesswoman, Annette Lyles. For today's episode, I thought I would take you back in time again, but this time I would tell you about a shoemaker from Kensington, from the Kensington section of Philadelphia, 
who committed a multitude of hideous crimes throughout mm, the 70s. So, pardon me, I am ever so slightly snuffly. I'm just now catching that my allergies are a little bit annoying right now. So, let's get into it. The origin story is a bit complicated, like multiple sources, Wikipedia, uh, Murderpedia, and uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, for instance, have given different names um, for my subject when he was born, as far as his last name, and who his birth parents were. What I have confirmed is Joseph was born on December 11th, 1935 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In December 1937, his birth father abandoned the family, forcing his mother to place him in an orphanage. On December 15th, 1938, uh, three and a half, like, he just, he just turned three. And actually it was 49 or 39 Four-year-old Joseph would be adopted by Austrian immigrants Stephen and Anna Callinger. Both Stephen and Anna immigrated to Philadelphia in 1926. Shortly after meeting, the two wed purchased a building which they operated their successful shoe repair business from, as well as the home next to their business. One fateful day in 1938, a customer was unable to pay for his shoe repair, but he possessed an Irish sweepstakes ticket. Stephen accepted the ticket as form of payment, and that March, when the sweepstakes was drawn, Stephen and Anna learned they'd won $3,000, which would be approximately $64,707.87 today. With the $3,000 windfall, the couple paid off the mortgages on their shoe repair business, their primary residence, as well as procuring a summer home in the northern suburb of Willow Grove. The couple, who were in their early 40s, wanted an heir, and with their business and finances in order, they decided to adopt. After being adopted, Joseph moved into the couple's home in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. The neighborhood was initially excited for the Callengers welcoming Joseph. Life as the son of Stephen and Anna was difficult, though. From outward appearances, the Callengers were an old-world, old-fashioned, older couple who, because they'd been later-in-life parents, were extremely overly protective and doting of Joseph to the point of keeping him under their thumbs, hindering him from participating in the social and character-building activities such as playing with the neighborhood children. Because the Callengers were so extremely private as a family, outsiders didn't know what hell Joseph was enduring behind closed doors. By the age of six, Joseph's beatings had become so intense and horrendous, he'd suffered a hernia. The Callengers implemented various forms of corporal punishment, beating him with belts, catanine tails, burning his flesh with hot irons, forcing him to kneel on sharp jagged rocks, starvation, forcing him to commit self-harm, 
to eat excrement and locking him in rooms and closets. His parents would assault him with hammers and threaten to remove his genitals. When he wasn't being beaten within an inch of his life by both Stephen and Anna per his recounts of his childhood, he spent countless hours in the shoe repair shop learning the family's business and trade. Many would describe Joseph as a sullen boy who was unable to venture out and make friends or socialize with his peers. When Joseph was nine years old, a group of neighborhood boys sexually assaulted him at knife point. Following the attack, Joseph began masturbating with a knife clutched in his hand. Raised a devout Catholic, Joseph attended Visitation Roman Catholic School. While praying in church at the age of 12, Joseph said he experienced his first, his first visit from God. In that conversation with the Lord, he told Joseph he was born to be a shoemaker, and he provided Joseph with parents who would teach him how to do so. With that, Joseph was determined to excel at learning the craft of shoemaking. When he wasn't pouring himself into the family business, Joseph was able to find escape in the form of writing and dreaming of leaving his Kensington neighborhood to become a famous playwright. When he was a freshman in high school, two major events happened in Joseph's life. He was cast as Ebenezer Scrooge in the YWCA production of A Christmas Carol, and he met a girl he became instantly smitten with. When Joseph's parents caught their 15-year-old son with his girlfriend, they forbid him from seeing the girl. However, Joseph would hear none of that. He would end up dropping out of school, high school his freshman year. A year later, he would go on to marry his sweetheart and work full-time at his parents' shoe repair shop. Within the first two years of marriage, the couple welcomed a daughter and son that were named after Joseph's parents. During the time the teenagers were married, Joseph was physically abusive towards his wife on numerous occasions. Joseph would say that along with being a poor housekeeper, his wife was a negligent mother whose primary interest consisted of running around town with other men. Be it fed up with Joseph's abuse, a disconnection from being a wife and mother, or a litany of other reasons, she left him and their two children behind. In September 1957, Joseph was admitted to St. Mary's for loss of appetite and debilitating headaches, which were attributed to his divorce. Unable to care for his young children, Joseph temporarily temporarily placed his children into foster care. Although the children were in foster care, Joseph traveled regularly to visit his children. As fate would have it, one day the children rolled their ball in the direction of a woman as they rode on a train with their father. The woman named Betty would become the second Mrs. Joseph Callinger. The couple would go on to have five children together. During the course of their marriage, from the very beginning, Joseph was hospitalized on numerous occasions for severe bouts of insomnia, suicidal attempts, and four cases of arson, which took place twice in May 1963, August 1965, and October 1967. While he'd collected roughly $27,000, Joseph, 
which I looked up the equivalent value from 1965 as that was the medium year. Um, today it would be $233,680.90 in insurance money. He was tried and then acquitted for the arson. When he wasn't hospitalized or working at the family repair business, the shoe, uh, you know, shoe repair business, which he'd essentially taken over full running as his elderly father had grown ill and unable to work and subsequently passed away in 1970. Joseph was inflicting the same abusive treatment Stephen and Anna inflicted on him as a boy onto his children and his wife. By January 23rd, 1972, the police would be notified about the abuse inflicted by Joseph Callinger. As punishment for running away, Joseph tied up and branded his 15-year-old daughter's thigh with a hot spatula. He also handcuffed his son Joey Jr. to the refrigerator where he then beat the boy. A second son, Michael, also said that he had been savagely attacked by his father. Following the brutal attack on his 15-year-old daughter, she and her two brothers banded together and reported the abuse happening in their home at the hands of their father. A week later, Joseph was arrested. Bail was set at $75,000, but Anna Sr., that's what I'm going to call his mother at this point, steadfastly denied all requests to pay and have her son return home. She would tell neighbors that she needed every penny of her savings for her twilight years in life. Basically, her son could go fuck off, he could go fuck off, he could go fuck off, and he could go fuck off. The end. The news of abuse made the newspapers causing everyone to talk, which is why Anna was not going to bail her son out. As well as her needing to save every penny of her money for her twilight years, of course. So, while Joseph was incarcerated for seven months because he wasn't getting his bail, you know, paid for, he underwent psychiatric evaluations where he was diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia and an IQ of 82, which I looked it up and it is considered to be within the low average scale of intelligence, which means the person may face challenges in certain areas that require higher cognitive abilities, such as critical thinking, abstract reasoning, and decision making. But that's not, you know, that doesn't bar them from being a, people with an IQ within that range from being able to be productive members of society and working meaningful jobs and, you know, holding meaningful relationships, so on and so forth. Um, that's, this is just one sesame seed on an everything bagel, so to speak, when it comes to a personality. Um, this is just a factor. Joseph said the punishments he doled out on his children were no different than the disciplinary actions his parents used on him as a child. He was found to harbor hostile feelings towards women in particular and that he was suffering from major mental illness overall. Psychiatrists highly recommended Joseph needed supervision while with his family. During the seven months Joseph was incarcerated he wrote letters to 2,000 attorneys asking for their help in his case 
Joseph was found guilty. However, he was placed on four years probation with the provision he continued to seek psychiatric care. 18 months following their initial claims of child abuse, in February 1974, the Callender children recanted their original statements and claims of child abuse. The newspaper splashed photos of Joey Jr., who was 14, and told the court that he lied about his father because he, quote, wanted to have some fun. As winter, then spring, rolled along, Joseph's psychosis became extremely dark. Carrying on intense conversations with a disembodied head named Charlie and God, Joseph confided in his 12-year-old son, Michael, that he was instructed by the Lord to murder 3 million people. Furthermore, the Lord instructed Joseph to murder boys and mutilate their genitals. He'd also, sidebar, because um, it's not in the script, he also had planned on murdering his family and then himself. Um, and we'll get into that in a moment. But um, after confiding in Michael, the 12-year-old boy just said, okay, dad, and agreed to help his father on his mission. On Sunday, July 7th, 1974, shortly after 6 p.m., 10-year-old Jose Col Colazzo said goodbye to his parents. He was supposed to walk to nearby Frederick R. Mann Recreation Center, where he wanted to swim in the pool. The sweet, well-mannered little boy wouldn't return home. The following day, roughly 24 hours after Jose was last seen by his family, children playing in an abandoned, rubble-strewn carpet warehouse discovered the nude body of Jose. Following his autopsy, it was found that he sustained a laceration to his penis, had bruises on his face, shoulders, and legs. His cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. Police initially arrested 28-year-old James Smith for the child's heinous murder, but upon further investigation, he was cleared. After murdering Jose Colazzo, a week later, Joseph had taken out a $74,000, which amounts to $465,498.95 today, in life insurance on Joey Jr. Shortly thereafter, on July 26, 1974, Joey Jr. was reported missing. The missing boy's troubled history was recycled by reporters as they wrote about his disappearance. Searchers were, searches were conducted by the Philadelphia Police Department. In the wee hours of August 9th, Construction workers discovered the body of Joey amidst the rubble in the sub-basement of a building that was under demolition. Due to the condition of Joey's body, he had to be identified via his dental records. After Joey's death, when Joseph attempted to, you know, make a claim with the insurance agency, um, the insurance the insurance company immediately found all of this suspicious, you know, that we had a newly established life insurance policy taken out on this child and this child was recently found deceased and in the most suspicious of ways. So the insurance company 
alerted the police, telling them that they suspected foul play at the hands of Joseph Callinger Sr., where they were advised by police not to pay out on the child's death. On September 2nd, 1974, Joseph and Michael began, like, a, 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 they say six and a half weeks. It was longer than that. These, they weren't on a, a fucking crime speed. Pardon my French. It it lasted for months. On the 2nd of September, the two burglarized, I'm sorry, the suburban Harrisburg, Pennsylvania home of a local dentist. In this instance, the home was empty. The following month, local Philadelphia newspapers were covering the calendars again. This time because Michael had gone missing while horseback riding in Camden, New Jersey. When he was found, he suffered from amnesia and couldn't explain how he'd been separated from his family. On November 22nd, 1974, the father and son duo traveled back to Camden, New Jersey, where they burglarized, robbed, restrained, and sexually assaulted 22-year-old Joan Carty. On December 3rd, the two robbed four women at Knife Point, amassing $20,000 and jewelry in the robberies. One of the victims was slashed across her breast. On the 10th, the two traveled to Baltimore, Maryland, suburb to the Baltimore, Maryland suburb of Homeland, where Joseph forced Pamela Jasky to fillet him at gunpoint before robbing her. On January 6th, 1975, Joseph and Michael traveled back to New Jersey, where they robbed housewife Mary Rudolph in Dumont, New Jersey. During the course of their home invasion, she was also forced to perform sexual acts on Michael. Two days later, the pair traveled seven and a half miles away from their last crime to Lenonia, New Jersey, or Leonia, there you go. Armed with a revolver and a knife, the two approached the Romaine residence. After introducing himself as an insurance salesman, Joseph and Michael forced their way into the home. When they forced entry, they restrained Mrs. Romaine's 28-year-old daughter, Edwina, and Edwina's 4-year-old son, who were in the home to care for Edwina's grandmother. Actually and factually, they did not restrain the child, but they did keep him close by, and they ended up stripping him down. Fifteen minutes later, the Romaine's 21-year-old twin daughter, Randy came home and was restrained. 30 minutes after that, twin Retta, her boyfriend and her, her boyfriend Frank Welby and Mrs. Romaine came home and they were also restrained. The final person to enter the home was 21-year-old nurse and neighbor Maria Fashing. She lived like close by. She wasn't like a neighbor neighbor, but she lived in the hood, if you will who was at the Romaine residence to check in with the family as Mr. Romaine was in the hospital recovering from heart issues. All were restrained with the exception of Mrs. Smith, who was the 90-year-old mother of Mrs. Romaine, and she was upstairs in bed, and Edwina's four-year-old son who had been stripped naked. 
Frank Welby and Maria Fashing were separated from the Romaine family and they were held in the home cellar. When Joseph threatened Frank with emasculation, Frank promptly fainted as anyone would. I absolutely would probably have yelped the yelp of yelps, the scream I might have scrumped, and I would have hit the deck. It would have happened. Somebody get fetch my smelling salts. Absolutely. So he faints. After being in the Romaine home for approximately an hour and a half, Maria was stabbed repeatedly after refusing to bite off the genitals of one of the two captive males. In all of this frenzy, Mrs. Romaine, who was bound at the ankles and wrists, was slightly freed by one of her twin daughters. She managed to burst out of the front home, out of the home, hopping onto her lawn, screaming for help for from a neighbor who just so happened to be walking by. And as she was begging for help, insisting that her family was in the process of being murdered, two things happened. Michael observed Mrs. Romaine getting away and called out to his father. The second thing happened was Maria's blood curdling screams lingered in the air when she screamed, he's killing me. It pierced the afternoon winter air for sure. As the police were alerted, Joseph and Michael fled on foot, nearly being hit by a car as they disappeared onto a bus, putting miles between themselves and the crime scene. So they were using the bus as modes of transportation to commute from all of these various places that they were committing their crimes and they were basing their um the epicenter of travel was in new york so there's that and then they just kind of like fanned out from there so when police arrived they discovered the romaine daughters bound so tightly with venetian blind cords their wrists and ankles were bleeding and their mouths muzzled with tape. Edwina's four-year-old son was naked but not restrained. Blanche Smith was found unharmed and unrestrained in her bed, though she was transported to the hospital. And the body of Maria Fashing was found stabbed to death in the family basement. Of course, Frank Welby was found down there too, but he was fine. I mean, he had fainted, but he was fine. Autopsy results would show that any of the stab wounds would have killed the 21-year-old nurse. As police scrambled to find their killers, it was evidently clear that they were dealing with either a father, son, or uncle-nephew duo because like, they were giving descriptions to the police and all of these crimes described an older man and a boy who was roughly 12 years old as his accomplice. And this is spanning from the burglaries and the home invasions and sexual assaults and things of that nature that have been transpiring um, between Baltimore and Pennsylvania with New Jersey in the middle. Um, So... Immediately following the murder of Maria Fashing, descriptions of the duo led Joseph to take Michael to have his shoulder-length blonde hair cut short. However, a haircut would not be enough to thwart police. 
on January 17, 1975, after collecting an arsenal of evidence, Joseph and Michael were apprehended. Three days later, they were charged with Maria Fashing's murder. Witnesses from three states traveled and um, traveled to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where they identified both Joseph Sr. and Michael in lineups. Following their positive identifications, Joseph was held on a $100,000 bond. On the 31st of January, Joseph's mother, Anna Callinger, died. Unaware that he'd missed his mother's funeral by a day, Joseph broke free from guards to give a reporter a letter pleading to attend his mother's funeral and to have his final goodbye with her. With all of the evidence mounted against him and his history of bizarre deaths and happenings, Joseph and Michael were charged with three counts of first-degree murder. Someone, yeah, three, yeah, three counts of first-degree murder. Even though we only killed, well, okay, anyways. Joseph pleaded insanity, asserting that God directed him to commit the crimes. No, they couldn't have been charged with three. It was it was one count. One for each is what it was. My bad. It wasn't mathing for me. Joseph pleaded insanity, asserting that God directed him to commit the crimes he'd committed. After his first trial in Pennsylvania ended with a hung jury, he was, re he was retried three months later. Although Joseph had a history of psychological issues, he was found sane to stand trial and sentenced to life in prison for nine felony counts, which the sentence ranged from 30 to 80 years. The court was slightly lenient on Michael. While he was found to have acted alongside his father in the commission of the myriad of crimes he'd committed, he was found to have acted under the orders of his father. Therefore, Michael was ruled as being a, quote, salvageable delinquent. He was sentenced to attend a reformatory school. His, okay, yeah. So maybe it was two murder charges. Okay. Murder charge was dropped and he instead pleaded guilty to robbery. He was to stay on probation until his 25th birthday in 1982. In 1976, the state of New Jersey convicted Joseph and sentenced him to serve a mandatory life sentence that would run concurrently with his Pennsylvania sentencing. When Joseph began his life sentence, he began corresponding with Sybil author Flora Retta Schreiber. The two would build a rapport, and Ms. Schreiber's research and years-long correspondences would be used to write and publish The Shoemaker, Anatomy of a Psychotic, which would be published in 1983 by Simons & Schuster. While serving continuously, uh, while serving, jo Joseph continuously acted out violently, fighting and assaulting fellow inmates and causing harm to himself even going so far as to set himself on fire in March of 1977. He attacked a fellow inmate the, fo the following month after he set fire in his cell block. A year later, unprovoked, Joseph slit the throat of a fellow inmate. The inmate would end up surviving that attack. 
Due to the nature of Joseph's psychotic outbursts and propensity to extreme violence, he was transferred to a Trenton, New Jersey mental hospital, then finally to another mental facility in Philadelphia. It wouldn't be until 1984 that justice for Joseph Jr. and Jose Colazzo would be dealt. Joseph Joseph was found guilty on both charges of first-degree murder, where he gained two additional life sentences. In 1986 and 1988, members of the Fashing and Romaine families successfully sued author Flora Schreiber, Simmons & Schuster, and... Joseph Callinger citing the 1983 Son of Sam law that prohibits criminals from profiting from the publicity gained from their crimes committed. Um, and so, of course, then money <clears throat> had to be paid back in royalties and things of that nature to these families. In 1990, Joseph Callinger would be transferred to Fairview State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Waymark, Pennsylvania. Following a series of suicide attempts, which included hunger strikes, he was transferred once more to State Correctional Facility Crescent. On March 26, 1996, Joseph died of heart failure. So, what had happened is this. Joseph Callinger is one of those people who... I would not say that he was born bad, but I would say that his life was horrible from the beginning and it did not really ever improve. Um, Starting with the fact that, you know, I don't know how old his parents were, couldn't find any information on who his biological people were, but to be put in a position where his mother had to put him into an orphanage as a baby because she couldn't, she most, she obviously couldn't care for him. She was too destitute to living that life in an orphanage with all of those other children for the time frame that he did until he did become adopted by Stephen and Anna Callinger, that was probably a lot in and of itself as well. And he's young. So he was in his most formative years, the most important years of his brain development. And then he gets adopted by this seemingly nice couple who turn out to be hell on wheels with the abuse that they doled out on this child. Not just the physical abuse, the emotional abuse, but keeping him to themselves under lock and key and not allowing him to socialize with his peers in a healthy manner that stunted him it absolutely stunted him and then you know he's in this shoe shop huffing all these fucking fumes i said what i said huffing all of these fumes that wasn't good for his his developing brain cells i understand he was learning a trade but i know for sure there was no damn proper ventilation up in there 
it had been noted and you can go through any one of the various there's a lot of references you can go through the references and hopefully somebody can find it but it was it was referenced that he spent a lot of time in that shoe shop and he was huffing a lot of fumes he was taking in a lot of shit and then as he got older and he fell in love with the first girl that he met he immediately wanted to disassociate you know just distance himself as far as being just his parents child he wanted to have he wanted to be a man he wanted to have a family of his own however it just didn't work out it just wasn't in the cards they were young he had only known abuse growing up and corporal punishment and that translated into how he related to his wife and children when she left he couldn't take it and he was hospitalized he then meets his second wife and she gives him five children in rapid succession and along with all of that you we got to go back to the fact that by the by the time he was nine years old he had been sexually abused by neighborhood kids so he had a distrust of people on the outside he and knowing that people on the outside would hurt him and a distrust of people on the inside because the people that were supposed to take care of him were harming him and also at 12 the 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 conversation with god that would become an ever-present part of his psychosis throughout his life would be these conversations with disembodied heads and the Lord. And while it started out fine, it got ugly when his psychosis took hold. And, you know, they tell you um, when you're dealing with people that have these levels of mental illness to remove any of the religious items and books from your home if they're there with you because something about the mental illness a lot of them cling to religious dogma and so okay by 12 he was already displaying some some breaks with reality you know he goes on has all of these babies with his wife he's still continually huffing all these fumes he had gotten really well known within that within his niche of shoemaking but he was doing all sorts of abusive things to his children and drop a clues bomb for his kids for being strong enough to go against their dad when they recanted 18 months later i absolutely believe that that was under coercion when joseph was found dead and then murdered i absolutely believe that joseph was murdered because of resentment because he felt that joseph was the most vocal of the children in their accusations of abuse which 
put him in the newspaper, upended the what happens behind closed doors notion that he had grown up with and tried to prescribe for his family. You know, basically you brought dishonor upon the family by running your mouth. Um, but absolutely, I believe that those children recanted their statement because they were coerced by their father. Um, he had said in an interview with Geraldo, and I could not find the actual date on it. I wish I could. He had said in that interview that he was told by God to kill 3 million people. He said that when he killed his son, Joey Jr., it was to see if he was even capable of murdering a child, you know, a child of his own, a family member of his own, something that was his. And when he did go through with it, he already knew that he was going to murder the rest of his family members and then commit suicide. Um, all to please the direction given to him by God and probably also this disembodied head, Charlie. Um, he had again been displaying mental illness issues from the beginning of the marriage throughout he coerced his son Michael into going along with this plan they lured Jose Colazo and murdered him they together worked as a team when they traveled by bus from state to state committing these burglaries, these robberies, these sexual assaults. Um, you know, they said that after his, after Michael was released from the reformatory school, he moved out of state, changed his name. I hope he lives good life I really did not want to look further into him after that because I didn't want to potentially be disappointed in further decisions made in his life but um yeah I I, f I found that this was extremely disturbing it it started from the very beginning of his life and Unfortunately, he wasn't taken as seriously as he should have been. Um, I would say when he was ramping up towards murder and he had been in and out of the mental institutions. Um, for sure. Uh, I mean, because hell, if the psychiatrists were highly they were highly um nervous for the Callinger family being around him without supervision they knew what he was capable of and they knew what he was probably going to do if he wasn't under strict supervision but there's only so much that they could do within the confines of the legal system. Um, it was just horrific. It's horrible. He ruined the lives of many. Um, 
But at the same time, he he's absolutely a textbook case of a victim who becomes um, a predator. And he was like an apex predator at that. He was really ramping. As you could see, there was like a rapid escalation in the amount of crimes that he was committing. And he was not going to stop until he felt like he had reached the goal that God had, you know, told him in his head. So, yeah, mental illness is real. Let's all be very aware of the people around us. Um, That's it. I got nothing else on this one. It was just a weird weird ass jacked up dad on a father's day weekend story for you guys um i don't really have anything else i'll be back here soon probably within the next like two weeks or so i don't know i might read a book or something for you guys before for content i don't know who knows it's the summer we'll see but again my name is kimberly i'm your host and this has been another episode of what had happened to true crime podcast Let me hit you with some of that beautiful outro music.